years, we have dwelled in the shadows, applying our skills and knowledge in secret, speaking our truth to all who would listen, applying our trade for those in need. Now, it is time to emerge into the light, wipe our eyes of dust, and venture forth into the world. Make ourselves known and invite all who seek our secret knowledge to work and learn with us. Welcome, friends and fellow seekers, to the Secret Society of the Instructional Designer. Travel with us auditorily as we explore the work and practice of our humble society. We begin with a discussion from some of our illustrious members, including a special guest, and then finish with one of our most venerated traditions, a question from the Question Hat. And since I was the one who started talking, I will start with introductions here. My name is Steve Widener, and I am, as of about a month ago, the Director of Instructional Design Technology and Testing at Rocky Vista University. I'll go next. Um, my name is Rachel Stern-Lockerman. I am an Instructional Designer at the City University of New York I'm in their CUNY Online program. I'm Clea Mahoney, Learning Designer based in Colorado, currently unemployed, but, you know, maybe that'll be different by the time this episode airs. <laughs> And before we get started today, we have one more introduction to make. Our mysterious fifth member has joined the chat today. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Carly Lasaski. I'm a Learning Innovation Program Manager at, in the Dartmouth Center for the Advancement of Learning, which is a lot of fancy words to say that I coordinate our Accessible Dartmouth Initiative. I help faculty um, who are interested, and, and staff educators as well, who are interested in bringing in um, concepts of universal design for learning and accessibility to their teaching. Uh, I am based in Detroit, and so I work remotely. And I, I have two young kids and an orange cat who causes all of the chaos. And I'm really, really excited to be here. I have also, you know, in coming to my first episode, finally, I brought a lovely guest with me today. Uh, Courtney Plotz is our guest. She's an expert in culturally responsive teaching. She's written books, regularly leads trainings, and is even building an app that we might maybe hear a little bit about today. Uh, so before we jump into the questions, Courtney, can you introduce yourself for us? Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Courtney Plotz. I am a psychologist by trade. I'm a school psychologist, so I look at learning interventions, um, but I've done a lot of work in higher ed. And so my passion is just bringing cultu cultural responsiveness to any sort of learning environment. So thanks for having me. Thank you for telling us some about your background, Courtney. And thank you for talking about, you know, joining us today. Um, the topic of the day is culturally responsive pedagogy and why it's important. Um, so we, obviously, because we um, are all, we talk about this a lot, um, think that this is very important, but for anyone else listening, they're like, oh, you know, I just, you know, I take my requirements, I talk to my SME, I talk to my faculty, I put it all together, I, I don't understand why I have to just shove another thing in here. Why should culturally responsive pedagogy factor into our work as instructional designers? Is an awesome question. So... I have kind of three reasons why that's true. One is because cultural responsiveness is more than ethnicity. So you're looking at things like cognitive culture, how people think about the course that they're in. You have community culture, how you're building online connections and community. And you're also looking at collaborative culture, how people um, 
are engaging in any sort of learning environment and the pieces that are missing. And historically, teachers, educators, and instructional designers aren't taught on the cultural aspects of doing them. So it's not just the ethnic pieces um, or the social justice pieces that are important. It's also those kind of cognitive exchanges and collaborative exchanges. Number two, um, Currently, the methods that most instructional designers are using don't consider acculturative stress. So whether that's someone in the military, coming out of the military into civilian life, or whether that is a BIPOC student in a predominantly white space. And so people um, are designing based on frameworks that assumed that everyone kind of had a level playing field, everyone was kind of doing the same thing, everyone had the same access. And number three, is that the traditional methods don't really look at the ethnic components of things like collaboration, um, cognitive culture, or community culture. And so there's a lot of um, ethnic influence that goes into those things. Um, that's amazing. I, I'd also love to hear about more about what you mean, because um, oftentimes, you know, it's it's common that we hear, um, you know, DI is more than just D. There is so much focus on ethnicity, which should be taken into account, but how do we also uh, bring that around for, let's say, concepts of neurodiversity, which is a oft not talked about um, concept when we talk about pedagogy and, and design? Sure. Yeah, neurodiversity is interesting because in my field, what one of the thing, one of the reasons I left my old position, which I I really enjoyed, but I was there for ten years. I really want to start looking at the science of neuroculture and looking at how culture influences cognition. And when you're talking about something like neurodiversity. Um, whether that is someone who has um, a diagnosis of autism or whether that is someone who was raised in one cultural space and is being educated in another cultural space, there's a lot of science behind neuroculture and what that looks like. And so neurodiversity, I think people think on the excess on the line of accessibility um, when it's it's that and all the other things. And that's where I'm trying to um, support instructional designers is helping them understand the small changes that you can make um, when you're working with faculty or when you're designing a course. So for instance, one example of community and academic culture shifting would be what is the DEI history of a course? Is that listed? So can they, is there a tab in the course where, where it shows the, the kind of considerations that have been made for equity? Um, is there a history trail there? And what does that look like? So it's just something basic, really basic things that you already have the information for, you're already doing, but it just adds some extra oomph to the space. Yeah, I love that you're bringing up like this concept that, you know, neurodiversity, you know, is is part of neurodivergence or, or part of DEI sort of efforts. I'm thinking of a lot of folks are really surprised when they hear that disability cultural centers exist okay. and that there's a culture and there can be a culture around disability. So I really love um, that sort of intersectional lens that you think about, not just, you know, race and ethnicity, but bringing in those other pieces as well. Yeah, yeah, it's the lived experience and we don't have enough we don't we we aren't trained enough in education as a whole in the practices of bringing lived experiences to the educational space. So right now, what we have is is you have hey we're going to read some case study, or hey you have to climb a mountain to get access to something, and that's why you have a story instead of how are, how can we design a course that really opens all channels for access and is representative of 
of whomever is in that space, whether it's online, face-to-face, or hybrid. I'm going to say that in that duh moment, that um, the the idea of a change log for a course, for for students to actually say, oh, the instructors actually thought about that. That that was just a how how did we never think of this? I mean, I certainly you know at, at my institution the whole thing of cognitive load uh, <laughs> is is a huge thing, and there is they are terrified of throwing anything at their students that is unnecessary in their words. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the students I'm dealing with, these are medical students who are supposed to be brilliant. And, you know, there's nothing saying they have to look at this, but for them to be able to go and look and go, oh, these are things you've already done. Yeah. Cool. Right. Well, it That's- also just keeps the history to show for the institution, like this is something that matters. So I always say, you know, just lift the veil. We're There are people doing really meaningful work, but it never gets to the student. And that is also, uh, you know, my institution is in the middle of our 10-year accreditation uh, thing. So the whole idea of having documentation and evidence that right. you have recognized that here are things that you needed to work on and, hey, here's the work you did, um, that kind of... I, I have the feeling that once my institution is finally past that, I'm going to bring it up with my boss and say, maybe this is something we could consider for the future and have yeah. everyone still ignore because let's be real. <laughs> faculty. But, you know, it's I am also the patron saint of misplaced optimism. So I can hope for these things. Yeah. And I think, I think what you'll find is that some people, yes, will be like, that's just another thing I don't want to do. But if, even if it's something that five instructors do, that's five five instructors who teach maybe one or two courses, you're impacting a lot of students that way. I am a big believer in the patron saint of uh, misplaced optimism, I guess. There's lots of critiques of of incremental change that we can make that I think are really legitimate. But the fact of the matter is sometimes that's what we can achieve. And any change is better than no change at all. Yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't have to be complicated. If you're meeting with faculty over Zoom, just hit the record button in the transcript, have it make notes, and that's what's posted. It doesn't have to be this whole other exercise in all things document, you know, document, you know, having that documentation, um, you know, you just you just kind of start with something. And it also just shows a history, you know, it's a, it's a history. And that's part of our challenge, right, is in especially in the United States, history is um, is written by specific people. And so you want to be you want students to, to see, especially I, I happen to be biracial. My dad's black. My mom's white. So if I were in a school in the middle of the country and I am a, you know, I'm one of the only, um, you know, BIPOC students there, that could be my lifeline is the fact that I, somewhere in this building, these people, this whoever is logging this is understands where I am, you know, because maybe they don't have a diversity center or maybe they can't get to campus. So they don't have that access to the campus itself. So it, it can really be a lifeline for students. And that made me think of like what you were, it was really powerful when you spoke about how um, we often transplant students from one culture, neurotypical culture, while they're neurodiverse, um, if they are uh, the only BIPOC student or student of their background, and they're suddenly placed in a school which has no uh, record of that. That actually reminded me of um, Christopher Emden's book um, for white folks who teach in the hood. Um, he calls it reality pedagogy. It's very much trauma-based, uh, you know, trauma-aware. I mean, I think all of these things really come together of things that we really should be bearing in mind. Um, but oftentimes, like you said, 
you know, it's just like, oh, this is something else to consider. So when you're like, yes, record it and, you know, make that the notes. But when you're dealing with a faculty who's just like, oh, God, yes, I have to do this, I guess. And then I'll forget about it entirely and I'll spend the entire conversation checking my email. How do yeah. you kind of like have that aha moment of like, yes, this is not just something, yes, you should do a box to check. This is something you should be incorporating from the beginning. COVID highlighted it's something that we already knew already. People do not like having choices taken from them. Um, and so when you present faculty with choices, they they will choose what resonates with them. And there's something that I write about called the ACE model. So whether it's instructional design or teaching, there's academic culture, community culture, collaborative culture, cognitive culture, and intersectional and ethnic culture. And so if you give them two ideas in each of those domains, there's 10 choices. So it doesn't matter which ones they pick. They will all be culturally responsive. It's just which one you want to add to the course, right? It's just that some will benefit some students more than others or, um, you know, my, my, uh, my suggestion is, is always look at the demographics of your college and design accordingly, right? It should be reflective of, of the demographics of the college. And so that helps a lot. And um, that's one of the reasons why I developed the app was because I wanted instructional designers to be able to see these models and have multiple choices across various ethnic groups and across various um, pieces of culture and just be able to click on it and say, what do you think about this idea? What do you think if we work on this? You know, and then a, a correlating handout and then you have everything that you need and then you can just kind of help the, the faculty move along because no one can do it all and everyone's working at a disadvantage because historically those so many of the models are Eurocentric in nature. So even if you're a designer of color, um, it's not it's it doesn't have that ethnic piece to it. So it's just really kind of looking at those ethnic pieces and those other aspects of design that are really going to get you um, what you want for your students. So for instance, another example would be like collaborative culture. Anytime you do a collaborative activity for the first time in a course, whether online or face-to-face, -face, it's another first day, right? Because, because people haven't been in groups before. They haven't been in these small groups. So if I randomly assigned everybody on the podcast right now into a small group, let's say you didn't know each other, now you're in this group. Well, now you just shifted the whole dynamic. So what's helpful is if you do a mini syllabus, for collaborative learning, and you basically do another first day for that for that exchange, because some people love to disappear in 200 black screens of Zoom. Now it's just the three of you. It's very intimate. <laughs> and so that's going to take some social, what's called social norming, to be able to help people engage in that way, especially after COVID, because there was so much screen time and so much togetherness and so much, um, you know, face to or, you know, screen to screen contact, um, you're shifting that course dynamic. And so if you just create a mini syllabus, that for collaborative learning only, that really helps students flow to that next phase. And it really helps uh, minimize some of those internal group struggles, uh, some of those, some of those dynamics, some of those power dynamics. And so maybe something you'd put in a mini syllabus for collaboration is, you know, how is power going to be shared within this group? How, 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 what, what does the group identify as a meaningful contribution? So it's just kind of changing some of that language and really kind of supporting students when we as the people um, who are those, those um, kind of power holders in the course make a shift, right? We have to provide the support when we make it. Can you talk more about that app? 
that, sure. that all sounds amazing. Um, yeah, but sure, sure. I'd love I'm to super... hear more about how the app's going to work. And uh, yes, so... I'm super excited about. I'm super excited about. It. And I will, I will, I will send everyone on the podcast a, a preview. It should be ready by the first week in January. So the app, I developed the app for for three reasons. One, because I felt like cultural responsiveness needed to be more portable. Two, I felt like so many people were so afraid to get it wrong, so they kind of froze. Because there's people who totally get it and there's people who will never get it. But there's a bunch of people in the middle who are like, hey, I want to do this thing, but I'm not exactly sure. And everything I'm reading doesn't necessarily fit with my design style or it doesn't fit with my my, you know, um, teaching, teaching style. And so what I did was I went through the research ethnically and I said, what is the research for neuroculture for each of these ethnic groups? And so, for instance, um, when what, what you're looking at is research based in uh, multi-ethnic counseling. And it says, what are my best chances of getting novel information from me to you in your own lens? So let's say someone is, you know, from the Sudan and they are not familiar with academic culture. So the culture they are most familiar with is their own culture. So maybe they come to the States and the academic culture is completely unfamiliar. They're going to default to their ethnic culture to try to make sense of the world around them. And so there are specific learning attributes that you can use to deliver content that makes it the, the best possible chance of you getting novel information from yourself, regardless of race or ethnicity, to someone else, regardless of race or ethnicity. Yeah, um, I sort of want to, I'm very excited about your app. I kind of want to um, bring up something that came out of the training that I took with you. And I said I was going to bring this up earlier and did not. <laughs> um, but I met Courtney because she was facilitating a about a year long training um, through um, an, an organization in the Northeast. And that's how I became a learning and online diversity, equity, and inclusion officer. I remembered all of the words, uh, <laughs> a, lo a lodi uh, <laughs> officer. And so through this training, we really dug in deep. So I cannot, you know, I can't ask you to sort of summarize the whole thing, right? But um, one thing that really stuck out to a lot of my particular cohort was your sort of tier model, which I think is really helpful for when we're connecting sure. with faculty. So can you maybe just short sure. and quick talk about the different tiers? Sure, sure. So this works with corporate culture or high education culture. What you can do is you can measure out a of stress. And so I did that on a, on a larger scale. And it basically says, based on these levels of acculturated stress, this is your best intervention to kind of take that down. So um, tier one is minimum acculturative stress. So that means people are fairly familiar with the environment. It's a great opportunity to build cultural competency. So that in a classroom setting would be something like um, a sense of community rubric. So instructors would work with their students and they would create values and every probably biweekly um, or once a month, everyone participates in the rubric about the community. So whether that is, um, you know, something like civility. So maybe, you know, an instructor wants people to to um, gauge civility 
uh, or you know whatever those items are that the students and instructors agree on. Then the second level is tier two, which is collaborative culture. So what that means is someone's acculturated stress is a little bit higher. So in order to get them comfortable in the learning environment, you would have to do tier one practices and tier two, which means you'd have to focus on academic culture, community culture, and cognitive culture to kind of get them situated in the learning environment. So again, that would be an example like a mini syllabus or something like that. And then the third tier, it really doesn't have much to do with um, instructional designers or educators because it's more on the clinical side, which is you've done all these things to kind of mitigate the acculturated stress and reduce it, but it's not being reduced. And that's because that culture shift is so large. And if you want an example of this, an example would be back in 2020, if you think Think about where you were when you were told to go home. Some people, it was like their Super Bowl and they were like, yes, I've been waiting to work from home for years. Yes. Right. Those people felt almost no acculturative stress from that, from someone removing your workplace culture and you going home. You, you didn't feel any stress. You felt joy. You felt competent. You were like, I can be the leader for my department. I can do all these things. I have all the tech. This is my, right? This is my Super Bowl. So that acculturative stress there, you didn't feel much from the removal of your campus culture. But there were some faculty who really struggled because the two shall never have met. Home life has nothing to do with my work. And I think what I heard you just say is I'm supposed to bring all this work stuff to my sanctuary with my cat and my coffee and somehow still be productive. That acculturated, that culture change was too great. And so people really started struggling with their mental health. And that would require what's called a tier three intervention, which would mean that you would do some sort of, uh, and a clinician, this is not something educators do, would do some sort of evaluation to understand that experience and then support them with accommodations just like you would for a learning disability, except based in culture, because that's the issue. So when you have a student who, um, you know, the traditional thing that I think people understand is an inter, you know, an international student, right, that's coming to the States or vice versa, and you have a culturative stress. Well, if you're sending them to the writing center, that's not what the issue is. So that intervention isn't equal, just like you wouldn't send a visually impaired student to a workshop for dyslexia. Those things aren't, aren't, aligned properly. So when we talk about culture, it's so important because high levels of acculturative stress mimic learning disabilities. So it's hard to concentrate. You have memory memory issues because the brain cannot learn and lifeguard at the same time. And so, and, and you know that you've had a culture of stress where um, maybe you have been kind of minding your own business and you're so ready for this assessment or you're so ready for something and you show up and your mind just goes completely blank completely blank. And you're like, I don't know what's going on with me. There's some sort of culture shift that happened that stripped that from you. And so that's why culture is so important. So I hope that that helped with the tier model. No, that, that makes sense. And that actually makes me think of what happened back 2020. Let's all think back to that day um, that my office had allowed working from home a few days a week under the radar. So I'm sorry if anyone in my old job is listening to this podcast. I'm, I'm giving you some spoilers. 
And once the shift happened, we basically had no issue because we had been used to having this kind of hybrid. Um, several people are working remotely. You're still accountable for all your work. And we noted that many of my our friends or people in other offices did not have that level of seamless transition. There was a massive disruption. In fact, one faculty I worked with didn't have home internet. They were just like, why would I have home internet? I don't need it. And they were right. They didn't use it. And so they didn't need it. So one of the... Uh, shifts that were really revealed were both a that culture that was like this is shocking i don't have a dedicated workspace as well as um you know the equity piece that we had many students who were like i don't have home internet when i need internet i go to the library i go to the i go to mcdonald's we have a lot of lower income students who use that as a free wi-fi so like, those kinds of cultural shifts are more than just you know what we traditionally think of as like this is this is who you are as a person you're this ethnicity this religion what have you i mean just just to tag in on that i mean something that is is worth pointing out that it can be as little as a distance of a half mile for people to get internet uh you know i came out of central new york where for the longest time I was on a little farm road and I kept getting all of these mailers from Verizon telling me, you can get DSL. And I would call them up and say, so can I now? And they're like, wait, what? Yeah. So you just sent me this thing. Uh, can you check your map? Oh, oh yeah. No, no, you can't get that. Okay. Can you update these things then maybe? Uh, I mean, I had a faculty member at a previous institution who his entire little group of like, six houses on this street were just far away from a trunk that they all wound up having to pool their money to convince the local cable company to run a line down to them because the cable company was like, eh, it's only six here. You're not close enough. Um, so they had to pay for their own infrastructure and there's any number of folks who can't do that. And as much as we assume, we got to remember there's, still folks out there who just don't have internet and we can sit there and say, but you've got wireless. And we all know how that works too. All right. So I have a personal anecdote to share um, and then I'm going to try to lead to a question. So I just want to say, Courtney, I really love what you've been saying. And as you've been sharing your experiences in supporting companies and faculty to adopt and adapt uh, some culture, culturally <laughs> responsive, say that 10 times fast practices you know, I think there's like two perspectives. There's one, which I often tried to use with faculty when I was working in higher ed of, can you have them relate to a moment where they felt out of place or they felt that lack of belonging and, hey, what an opportunity to do this differently in your classroom. You know, I thought about that for myself. I thought about all the first generation students and students from other countries that were taking courses online with me to learn professional writing. Side note, don't know how I was hired to teach that, <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about their experiences before any of the content, because ultimately the learning, the classroom, that community, it needs to reflect their experiences for that learning to happen. So I think often that can be one way to get faculty buy-in. Um, and then I'm also thinking about the the other side of the fence. So I'm I was born in Germany. And when I came to the States for the first time, um, they put me with the 
uh, like special needs kids. And it took about a week. And then they realized, oh, wait, like Clea doesn't have special needs. She's just foreign. She just needs to learn how to speak English. And like she has different, different challenges and, and different needs. So, you know, that to me is a moment of like, what is the challenge actually? And are we providing the right intervention? Yeah. Um, just a lot to wrestle with. But my question for you is, do you have any secrets or strategies or do you do anything differently when it comes to um, trying to ad- trying to encourage corporations, nonprofits, um, organizations outside of higher education to include cultural cultural responsiveness wow. in their in their environments? Yeah. So so when I work with with corporations or just organizations that aren't education based, it's all based on building a curiosity quotient. So how curious are you? Because if if you can't tap into people's point of origin where their curiosity stopped, it's very difficult to get the buy-in on anything. And so we do a lot of activities of people talking to one another. And this I do use in higher ed, but this is just an example that you can also use in corporate. So one of the questions, um, you know, if you think of icebreakers, right, corporate icebreakers, It'll be something like tell people your name, your job, and you know what your favorite color is, or, or so, something fairly benign. But the problem with that is, is it doesn't elicit what's called divergent thinking. So again, when you look at instructional design practices, when you look at corporate training, it's it's critical thinking is what's valued. But critical thinking is very Eurocentric. It's very fact based. It's very linear. Where what you really want is to to is to um, reposition people in a way that allows them to be more curious. And so a question that you would use is something like this. You'd say, introduce yourself. um, And you could say something like, if you were going to talk to an ancestor of yours or someone who looks like you or communicates like you do from 250 years ago, what would you want them to know about your job? Right, because because it takes a minute. So people are like, they totally... they're like, okay, wait, what was the question? Right. <laughs> right. And so, so, and then they're like, okay. And so some people take it very existentially and they say, well, I don't even know if my people, if I'd be able to communicate with my people because my family's from here and they speak this language, but I don't. And then other people are like, oh no, I'd love to talk to my great grandmother. So you, you, people completely reposition themselves And it doesn't become about them. It becomes about the culture at large. And so it's very then easy to build a curiosity quotient based on that um, and look at what's called reconfiguration or configuration reconfiguration, which is so we've kind of um, deconstructed, for lack of a better term, kind of just positioning in general. And you saw commonalities with people that you otherwise wouldn't get. Um, again, that can be also used in a in an online discussion forum because the whole thing is is it's not mandatory. It's just making room for the discussion. And if people want to have it, great. And if they don't, great. But you know, but but it's just it's just kind of um, putting it putting it in there. So yeah. Oh, thanks so much. And I love that phrase, curiosity quotient. Uh, yeah. I'm going to borrow it if you don't mind. <laughs> no, no, have at it. Have at it. Yeah. So there there have been some great ideas that have been great in the weeds thinking here. Um, but I'm going to take it back just a little bit because we are the Secret Society of the Instructional Designer. 
Uh, and just, I was wondering if you could share more about what skills are key for designers when it comes to culture, culturally responsive teaching uh, and how you might suggest designers get started in building those skills. Yeah, I think I think one of the keys, which is very hard for instructional designers because they're linear thinkers, is I think when they hear cultural responsiveness, it it sounds like it puts their brain on overload because there's so much. There's so much, right? Where do I start? I've already read 50 books this year. What am I going to do with that information? I have that folder from that conference that I swore I was going to get into, and I haven't quite done that yet. Uh, but I think it's really, really small changes. It's finding pockets of what you're already doing and changing them. Um, so, you know, an example would be people, you know, instructional designers might help someone um, develop a case study for, for a course, right? But a, a culturally responsive case study would just take out all demographic information and let the students fill it in. So it's reflective of the student, right? So the, it's like, why does why does it matter that his name is Brian and that he's 22 and that he lives in, you know, Poughkeepsie? Why does that matter? It, it should, I, I as the learner should be able to fill that in. And so now it's my case study and I, I'm forced as a learner to read the case study because now I have to fill in the information that's going to be important to me. So and that's how you get your your cultural exchange and that's how you get the meaningful discussion. So it's not these massive shifts. And I, and I think it's just more of learning the skills, um, you know, going through a program like Carly went through and just kind of getting the foundation pieces, because after that, um, the neurocultural pieces are very simple. It's just pulling out those little pieces and, and letting students fill in the difference or faculty. Yeah, the back channel on that, for those of you who are just listening to the audio, was totally all of us feeling called out. Hey, Not I'm going to say wrong. called in, called, called in, in, right? Called in, sorry, sorry. Called in of like, oh, yeah, all of these things that we've done, it's another thing to add. And yeah. I, I think that's part of why um, taking the Lodi training was so necessary for me, because I felt like it was, you know, I'm, I have ADHD you know, and all of the things that come along with that and not having a structure around it meant that it was something that I could easily push away and just like, oh, that's something I will get to, right? So I think um, if I can jump in and add something, I would just say finding either like a group of like-minded folks who want to do a reading group or have conversations about this or, you know, engaging in these formal trainings, which I know are not accessible for everyone for for lots of different reasons financially and whatever else it might be. Um, but having that sort of um, structure where you're committing to, <clears throat> to learning together um, and I think that also sort of plays into like the culture of instructional design where we do feel like we have to do everything on our own, right? Like you're, we're these sort of solitary, uh, you know, worker bees on our own, like structuring out courses and building things and learning management systems and, um, you know, figuring out problems on our own. And, you know, that's, that's why we formed this group. We were talking about this before we turned the recording on of this group is so important to us because we didn't want to be solitary any anymore. Um, so finding community around around this interest can be a really good way to start building that skill. Or, or so I found jumping into into the Lodi training with Courtney. <laughs> yeah, so I think our our next step here is to jump into our again venerated tradition of the question hat. So Rachel, let's see what you so, have in your question hat. Alas, I have to warn everyone. I know that we have described it. 
or because this is an audio podcast of imagine uh the sorting hat but more instructional designer but um alas nick is the holder of the uh of the sorting hat and uh none of us actually know each other in person so even though you we might sound the same uh this is coming from uh several states however i have met clea in person i can say that or have you it could be very convincing ai it's true it's true it's the next no, it, was, it was real i am real i promise it's clay gpt next version um but we did test the the laptop sleeve that we are using as a question hat and it does in fact function as a hat um the next version of is it a sand is a hot dog a sandwich is can anything be a hat um so, so i am before gonna- you pick a question from that amazing makeshift question hat i just want to point out that this is such an instructional designer thing like well, what do I have around me? What could I use, right? We're scrappy. We use resources. We don't need no fancy articulate storyline. We got Google Docs. Like, I love it. So um, yes, back to the program. <laughs> anyway, I wrote them out on a piece of paper, going old school. And the uh, options are... Um, uh, hold on, I'm mixing them. Um, If you could go, I needed to mix them. I needed to make sure I had a pseudo random number sorter just in case Clea is in fact a very advanced AI who does not do well with random numbers. Um, Anyway, so if you could go back and tell January 2020 uh, you anything about what professional development skills you'd need. You can't go back and tell them, hey, go buy Zoom, go buy a bunch of masks, uh, warn people, I don't know, like stand on a street corner, like holding a sign that says the end and I, you can't do any of that. But if you could go back and give yourself like a two month heads up to build some essential professional development skills, what would you build and why? Well, this question sounds like it was not randomly chosen. Like it just goes right to like Courtney's example question earlier. I could um, read the other questions it. if you prefer. No, no, prefer. no, it's good. I just, oh, I love how the magic of the question for this episode. Yeah. It's, it's how do you create a connection with someone who is also virtual? And how do you handle challenges when they're unexpected? And how do you handle personality differences um, when you are working with a collaborator? So all of them can technically really apply. Yeah, but I I Um, like this January 2020 question. So January 2020 is the winner of the question, Mm. laptop sleeve hat. So I'm I'm going to be a horrible person and and I'm not sure how much I could really have told myself because I will say that my morning thing was listening to NPR podcast in the morning while shaving. And that was the gradual something's going to happen here. Um, and you know, the, it, it was that little bit of the world because they were focusing on so much one story every day. And I'm kind of like, this is, this is weird. So I think the one thing that I would have told myself is mid-March. I would have just told myself mid-March is when this is going to go. Get ready for this. Um, cause honestly, I think that is about the best I could have gone. That that is about the best development I could have given myself was actually go, oh, I've got two and a half months. Okay, well, right. Mm-hmm. Mm. This is such a tough question. I think I would have told myself, buckle up, just put your seatbelt on. Um, I twenty twenty and twenty one and twenty two is such a blur 
because, and I knew it was bad because I would meet with people and they would tell me, they'd say, you're everywhere. I think what I would have told myself is, um, you know, all jokes aside, I think professional development wise, I think one of the things I had to learn was to give myself grace because I happen to be, a, you know, like a, a deadline based person, task oriented person. And in that environment, it, it just always didn't work that way. And I think it was, it was, that was a culture shift for me that I had to learn, like, it's okay if you don't meet with this person right away. It's okay if we put that off. It's okay, um, you know, and that's, again, privilege, right, in, in itself, that, that that's even an option. But it was just, it, there was so much coming so fast that it, it just it just got to the point where it was like, you know, so I, I think I would have told myself that sooner. Um, I think I was probably nine months in or a year until I realized like, oh, yeah, okay, we're still in a pandemic, like the world's still upside down. We're still trying to all figure this out. Like nobody's got it together. Nobody's, you know, um, and just, just, just giving myself grace for that, I think is important. That's what I, I think it's important if that we all need to learn to give ourselves grace. That's something that I think we, IDs mm -hmm. in particular are very bad about putting their own masks on before, uh, you know, the metaphorical airplane masks. Thankfully, most IDs I know were very, big on wearing masks um, because, you know, si IDs are very, usually tend to be very big on science. So uh, the metaphorical airplane masks, you know, often were like, yes, yes. So we need to be understanding and human with students and with faculty, et cetera. But for me, yeah, of course I have to work a hundred, a hundred hours this week and not sleep and give up my weekend because, you know, the stuff needs to get done. For me, I think the skill I would develop more would be um, working with people. My convincing people, this is why it's very important. Like, this is why it's valuable. This is why it's important. Um, because prior to the pandemic, uh, the only people who really would work with us are people who expressed an interest. Like, nobody would force you to develop an online class. And you might work very occasionally with professors who are like, yeah, I want to do this. My fact, my dean is making me do this. My chair is making me do this. And I don't think valuable. But that definitely wasn't the majority of your collaborations. The majority of your collaborations were people who expressed interest in making this happen. Whereas during COVID, obviously, that didn't happen. So if I had to develop, go back and tell myself to develop one skill, it would be get much better earlier about working with people who don't really value quality instructional design or quality online learning. Yeah, I think um, to use a, a dreaded, I don't know, I feel like corporate thing that people joke about all the time, to piggyback off of that. And it actually works really well with what I was thinking of and kind of my first instinct is I, it's something I am still really working on. So I don't think, you know, that two and a half months would have, you know, set me up to be like a perfect expert at this. But I think something I really wish I had started learning skills at earlier was having you know, those really difficult conversations with people and also being able to coach faculty through difficult conversations in their classroom. You know, 2021 or 2020, we saw, um, you know, not only the pandemic, but, you know, Black Lives Matter marches. We're still going through so many things that are requiring us to have a lot of skills of, you know, communicating with one another and being able to to talk about really difficult topics, really complex topics. And I, um, yeah, I think that's something I'm still working on. And the culturally responsive sort of um, frameworks have been really, really helpful in sort of being able to empathize with people and understand, you know, I don't, I didn't understand anti-maskers for a long time, but being able to see, okay, there's some sort of cultural components, whether I agree with their viewpoints or not, there's, there's cultural pieces, there's 
things that sort of, you know, undergird their, their resistance. And I think we can also bring that to when we have conversations with faculty, like there are cultural realities of, of the academic world that they're in. Um, I think about, you know, I'm, I'm at a private uh, R1 school where research is the most important thing for, for their tenure um, dossiers. So thinking about that and being able to understand the culture that people, not only where they come from, but the culture that they're trying to operate in right now. Um, yeah, I, I just think you know, those general skills would have been really, really helpful um, to start with. Um, and I think I would have saved myself a lot of grief um, and having those skills from the beginning. Yeah, I love this question. I love everything that everyone has shared. Um, for me, it's it's a little bit similar to Rachel, learning to work differently with people, but also honestly, like just asking myself, does it have to be done this way and learning to set boundaries and learning how to delegate. So I'm a helper at heart, even before the pandemic. Um, like I would regularly work overtime, helping these poor adjunct faculty learn how to zoom from a closet because one faculty member was convinced that was the best like sound environment. And it wasn't at all scary to be in a dark room with your laptop close to the face and teach. Anyway, it got him teaching in zoom. And I'm like, that's a win. Um, <laughs> those people ramped up when the pandemic hit and I quickly found myself running up to three workshops a day on using zoom on using the LMS that we were transitioning to, et cetera. And I loved helping, but it did take so much out of me. And I think I could have asked, oh, would a student worker like to lead this session? Or how can we partner with maybe a faculty member and share presentation time? Um, doesn't always have to be me. Doesn't always have to be through these synchronous sessions, regurgitating what I've already said two hours ago in a different Zoom training. Um, just trying to take a little bit of a smarter, more sustainable approach to creating resources that'll help people and learning also to take care of yourself. So I'm going to turn it back over to Carly to close us out. Yeah. So I just want to thank um, Courtney for joining us, you know, making time in your really busy schedule on, we re-record on Sundays typically to pull the curtain back a little bit. So taking time on a Sunday afternoon to talk to us and share so much of your expertise and, and your time in our show notes, I'm going to make sure to to include your website, um, any other links and information that you send me. And depending on we when we launch this, um, your app should be out. And if not, I will edit the show notes later and add it so that people can find your app and learn more. So thank you so much, Courtney, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. It was a lot of fun. And to all the instructional designers out there, thank you so much for all that you do. Because, um, you know, a lot of people think they can just throw a course together and there's so much more to it than that. And so anyone who's listening, who's not an instructional designer, please, please, please make the relationship with your local neighborhood instructional designer, because I promise you it will be a beneficial relationship. We greatly appreciate the shout out because any number of us have institutions where people still have no idea that we exist. I know. And the more people who know that we exist, the better we justify our continued employment. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Questions, comments, and secrets of our trade can be sent to secretsocietyotid at gmail.com. That's secretsocietyotid, all one word, at gmail.com. And we will see you next time through the mists of mystery. 
Yeah. <laughs> I love the mists of mystery. <laughs>